0: What's up, everyone? This is episode number 51 of the Wax Museum Podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on my social media. My Instagram is at Podcast. My Twitter is at PC. As usual, there's a lot going on in the hobby and in basketball this week. Um, There was a major class action complaint filed against PSA, PWCC, and Probstein. I'll address that later in the show. Um, An exquisite Michael Jordan and LeBron James dual logo man sold for $900,000. And TMZ actually broke that story, which I thought was interesting. I'm not even sure how that works. Um, You know, is that something that Golden Auctions or one of the parties involved feeds to them for exposure. Um, you know, I don't know. Um, I know that a collector named Nat Turner purchased the card. He's been an awesome part of the hobby community. He was, he was very transparent in um, talking about the card. So I'm not suggesting anything nefarious on his part. Um, it's, it was just weird to me. I'm not used to seeing news about my hobby in TMZ. Um, Anyway, the, that card and that acquisition—they've been covered already by several other content creators. I don't have much more to say about that. Um, also, we had All Star Weekend shortly after that. My review of All Star Weekend is short and sweet. Um, it was nice to see my guy Sabonis in the skills contest. Otherwise, you know that's probably my least favorite event of the weekend. But as you guys know. It's sponsored by Taco Bell, and the two of us are ride or die. So there will be no more skills contest slander on this podcast. Um, I love seeing Damian Lillard perform. You guys know I'm a fan of him on the court, um, but he performed uh, uh, musically. Um, and, and I think that's another unique way that players can really take ownership of the weekend. So as a big fan of that, I'm a huge Buddy Heald fan. So seeing him win the three-point contest was good. Um you know, it's a shame that the dunk contest had such a wonky ending, but this was a really good dunk contest. And um, one thing I like is that the players are moving further and further away from the props that had become the norm. So uh, kudos to everyone that was involved in that. That was a, a really good evening. Um, then there was the All Star game itself. And I think the NBA is going to continue to experiment with the rules a little, but I love the fourth quarter of this game, um, it was competitive. It was exciting. The players were really into it. And I felt like this was a successful week for the league. And um, of course, that makes me happy. Uh, And then there was the other big event, which is more of an ongoing event. And that's the great Optic chase. And I want to talk about that a little bit before I get into the main part of today's episode. I wouldn't say that I'm pursuing Optic as much as I did Prism. Uh, Of course, it helped that I had an entire week off from work when Prism came out. But um, I have gone out a couple of times looking for it. I was only able to find a blaster and three cellos. Um, and it was actually my wife that found those, even though we were there together. Um, I have mentioned it before. She, I think she enjoys part of this chase as well. We were at Walmart and we saw the empty tray that a lot of you are so used to seeing by now, that pink, bright pink tray. Uh, I looked behind all the sports car displays and didn't find anything. I was ready to move on. And, uh, you know, I don't like to linger after a a defeat, so to speak, right? So she had the eagle eye, though, this week. She found our blaster in three packs positioned so carefully behind the magic cards. So first off, thank you whoever did that. And then also, that might be something for you guys to consider in the future. You know, scope everything out when you're there. Um, There were a few nice cards in our break, but nothing huge. I didn't pull any Zions. I didn't pull any Morants, but... It was fun. And my overall impression of the product in person is that it looks really nice. And when I reviewed Prism, I talked about how I like the defined border. Well, Optic has that as well, but it's white instead of silver. And I actually I like the look of this product a lot better. Um, I do, however, want to touch on a few of the issues that have come along with this set. And I don't want to just harp on Panini, but it goes back to quality control, which for them this year is an oxymoron. And the, the first thing um, that I want to talk about is something they mentioned in their quality control gallery. So they knew it would be an issue, and I guess the thinking was, let's just take care of this ahead of time. Um, and they said two players, which is Kendrick Nunn, one, which is somebody that a lot of people have been waiting for his first rookie, and then Lucas Semanic. they have unintentional no-name-on-front base cards and base parallels due to a production issue is what Panini's calling it. Um, I heard another content creator talk about how they didn't have the rights to the names. I don't believe that to be the case at all. They stated it was a production issue. We've seen Kendrick Nunn cards with his name in Panini Instant. And then we've seen Lucas Semantic in multiple sets before this. So that uh, shouldn't have been anything to do with you know, the rights to their names. They just screwed up. And um, you know that was kind of disappointing. Another disappointing aspect is is the pictures that were used. And this one I really don't understand because Optic has always been just the chromium version of Donruss. It didn't really require any extra effort. Let's just re-release the same set, um, you know, add a few new inserts in, make it a chromium version, and call it a day. Um, it was very similar to Topps and Topps Chrome from back in the day. Well, instead we got a different Zion picture, which is a strange one. He's cuddling a basketball next to his ear, or maybe he's trying to hear the ocean. That's what it looks like. Um, the Ja Morant picture is the exact same one they used in hoops. The Rui Hachimura picture is the same one we saw in prism. And there's, there might be some more that I'm not aware of. Um, but these aren't any random players. These are three of the biggest rookies in the class. So it's just strange to me. Um, and then finally, you guys know I'm a big Pacers fan. So a bit of a personal gripe, I guess, is that Victor Oladipo is not in the set. Uh, Jeremy Lamb's there, Justin Holiday's there, you know, I know Victor missed a year, but John Wall made it in the set and we haven't seen him in a while, so that was a little strange to me, but before I move on, I can't discuss the set itself without also discussing all of the chaos that came with it and the pursuit, um, I talked about my pursuit of optic, I found a little, you know, it wasn't crazy, nothing, you know, chaotic really happened, but, um, Just looking at the logistics of everything this year, hobby boxes of this stuff usually deliver one autograph and 20 inserts or parallels on average. And I felt like even at last year's prices, this was pretty brutal. And the only redeeming graces um, then were the late emergence of the LeBron Silver, the Lucas Silver, and the Trey Silver Hollows. Um, I, I know I opened a retail box last year and my hit was 150 points. Well, this year the price on the hobby boxes has skyrocketed. I have no clue what it's even at now. I know some shops at one point were asking three hundred fifty or four hundred. I don't, you know, it might be higher, it might be lower. I don't know. But even in that range, this product is absolutely brutal if you're breaking. Um, and and I've talked about it before. You know, people can say all you want, buy singles, buy singles, which I agree. I think that's a better strategy. But after a while, the, even the price for the singles becomes so inflated just because the product itself is so expensive and people have to recoup those costs. Um, now, on the flip side, though, you have retail, which still has a lot of the same parallels. It's a lot cheaper. It's a lot better bang for your buck. And in theory, it's easily accessible because everyone has a Walmart or a Target close to them. But, similar to Prism, people are buying out entire displays when they find them. It's not a rare product necessarily, but it can be very difficult to find. And while some people are buying out these displays to open them, it seems like the majority are buying to flip. Earlier this year I talked about some of the retail flippers and the logistics they need to keep in mind, well, prices have gotten so far out of hand that it can actually be very profitable to buy Optic to flip. And um, a lot of people have taken exception to this whole practice because they just want to open some of the product and um, instead it's getting purchased and then immediately listed on eBay or Facebook and then obviously at a very inflated price. Uh, I'm not here to criticize the people that are doing this, but personally I'm not a fan of it at all And, and I don't think it's good for the hobby. Like I said, I'm not here to criticize you for that if you're doing it. Um, I think the people that ultimately lose out are the collectors, but I do want to show both sides real quick. So I've chosen two or three message board posts that I think represent each side in the most realistic way, and I want to share those with you. So first, there's the side that's for buying and then immediately flipping. Um, The guy that posted this, he talked about how he was 42, he has three small kids, and uh, making trips to Walmart and Target during the week are part of his side hustle. And he said, I'm not a wannabe distributor, a scumbag, or a turd. Just a family man who works as a coach or teacher, and need to make money on the side to do things like save for my daughter's college tuition and future weddings. I know a thing or two about sports cards, and I'm willing to hustle a little bit. I use knowledge that I've earned and am diligent and consistently making my rounds. That type of thing used to be considered a good thing in this country. Uh, and then he later added If I can pick up a few bucks here and there, getting my butt to Walmart and Target on a regular basis to check the shelves, I'm going to do it. Okay, so I I think that's a, uh, you know, you might not agree with that maybe, but that's a reasonable, um, a reasonable person speaking out and talking about why they would do this. On the other side, we do have some people who are exhausted by this whole ordeal. And um, here's a good example that I found from one of those people. He said, I'm on both sides of the argument. The current state of affairs is what it is. And I can't judge people for legally taking advantage of a hot market. But it sure does get frustrating and disheartening that I try to be on top of things, check stores often, just trying to get a hold of some product to rip at MSRP. And I can never seem to beat the people that are better than me at it. I have wasted so much time stopping at Party City, Big Lots, Walgreens, Dollar Tree, Target, and Walmart. Thank God I don't have a Myers. Finally, um, I'm going to read something to close this segment out that I felt was a pretty sensible piece of advice. And that's just for everybody That's that's a part of this whole thing, everyone that's maybe even watching it from a distance or watching it on social media. I know not everyone will agree with it, but it might resonate with some of you. So um, speaking of this whole thing, this, this one poster said, it's just a quick dopamine hit and a deep FOMO. That's fear of missing out. The best thing to do is to wait it out, refrain from paying these insane prices and understand that there is no shortage of this stuff out there. Much of it will sit unsold on eBay for months. All right. Uh, So that's all I have to say for optic. I'm sure it will be a part of hobby news for a while. Um, we haven't seen the end of Optic. You know, I am I'm, I would like to find some more. I like opening the product. I think it's a good product. Uh, it's probably good that I can't find a lot of it because it's keeping me from buying it. But um, anyway, I need to move on to the next big event from the week, um, which I haven't heard a lot of people talking about. And this forms my main segment for the day. And that is that a collector named Eric Savoy has submitted a class action complaint against PSA, PWCC, and Probstein, quote unquote on behalf of himself and the class of all others similarly situated. Um, now the official PDF of the complaint is 39 pages. As usual, I read it through for you. I'm doing the best I can to give you a fair and basic rundown of this thing. Um, you need to read it on your own though. you know if you really want to form your own opinion, I don't want to form your opinions. Um, I am going to try and give you some commentary as well to go with it. If you're new to this show, this isn't the first class action suit that I've covered. Way back in April in episode number six, I covered a complaint that revolved around Panini's use of redemptions. Um, Just an update for those of you that have listened. Here we are almost a year later and there aren't any significant updates to report. So I'm hoping something good comes of it still. Either way... It's relevant to the hobby no matter what sports you collect. Make sure you check that one out. Um, It talks some about the process of certifying a class action case. and I don't want to cover all of that again here. Okay, so as I said earlier, this case has three big defendants, PSA, PWCC, and Probstein. Just a side note, I've heard several different pronunciations of Rick Probstein's last name. Look, the guy has an old YouTube channel where he introduces himself. And you can hear the correct version there. It's Probstein with a long O. Um, Anyway, this complaint against these three um, basically takes aim at them individually before later claiming that um, a combination of them were in cahoots with one another. So I'm going to go through each defendant, and then I'm going to talk about the RICO accusations after that. So uh, let's start off with Mr. Savoy's major issues with PSA. And they can be simplified like this. PSA is supposedly the expert when it comes to sports cards. Despite that, they graded altered cards. And the complaint also states, quote, PSA should have been able to determine by visual inspection which cards were altered, and even if that had failed, it could have cross-referenced cards that were being submitted for a rating with its previously rated cards and with purchasers of its cards, and determined that cards were being altered and resubmitted, End quote. Now, I will add here, um, even though we've seen collectors on the message boards that have analyzed um, some of the fibers and the print patterns and the dirt and all sorts of marks for some of the non-serial numbered cards, mainly the vintage stuff, um, this would have been very difficult for PSA to do without any leads. Even though they are the experts, um, however, you know the document. That's that's the route they're taking. Is that they are the experts? So, you know, maybe they should have known. Maybe they should have been able to figure this out before the collectors. In addition to grading altered cards, it also notes in this complaint that PSA's fee schedule also incentivizes it to overgrade cards for consumers who are willing to pay more to have their cards graded. The complaint continues, PSA charges based on the perceived market value of cards and requires consumers to self-appraise the value of their cards before submission. Therefore, their customers should receive compensation. Okay, so that's the main argument against PSA, and there's some more stuff we're going to get into later. Um, but moving on, their case against PWCC is similar. In a roundabout way, uh, it says that PWCC tells people that altered cards can't be sold on their platform and then proceeds to sell them. So essentially, they're not living up to their guarantees. Um, The case then brings PSA back into this and says, in addition to selling altered cards that were purchased and altered by others, PWCC facilitated the scheme by buying cards that were altered and submitted them to PSA for grading and then later sold them through PWCC. Um, We're going to touch on that a lot more later. Continuing with uh, PWCC, they talked about the I appeal designation that they've got. Adam and I talked about this one on the PWCC episodes we did way back. And they've gone out of their way to claim that they don't grade cards, but then they also take cards that they think are undergraded um, and they slap an eye appeal sticker on them. Basically saying, well, this is a five, but it's a great looking five. It's not just any five. So that seems a little contradictory to me. They don't want to be in the grading game, but they're going to do that. So this claim... Um, I think they're thinking in that same vein. They said, "Pwcc used the i appeal ratings to increase sales on cards in which its principal had a direct financial interest." So they took it a step further there. Um, you know, it's no surprise then. I agree with the part at least about the i appeal that that is. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the i appeal. I don't know about you know if they had that financial incentive in there. I, that's something that we might touch on later on. Um, There is another component in the PWCC section that I think could be difficult to prove. That is that they claim, quote, PWCC allows and encourages its sellers to shill bid on their cards that are being sold by PWCC. And they didn't get into a lot of specifics here, but um, I have a gut feeling that this portion of the case will revolve around a Joe DiMaggio baseball card from the 1936 worldwide gum set Um, it's received a lot of attention in the last several years and i want to tell that story real quick because um, a lot of you probably haven't seen or heard about that Uh, i am going to preface this story by saying that the collector involved had a bit of a public dispute with pwcc so i'm not going to take um, everything that either one of them said as gospel but i'm going to try and piece at least the events together of the accusation and the response, and then you guys can go from there. So this collector's name is Courtney, um, and he was ultimately banned by PWCC, and they were very clear about uh, letting everyone know that. And um, unfortunately, he has since passed away, so if his name does get thrown into the equation, I'm not sure how things are going to be handled. They did post some stuff publicly on a message board. Um, I'm assuming that that's fair game. Anyway, the story goes that PWCC CEO Brent Hudgens bought this Joe DiMaggio card as an SGC-50 from Robert Edwards Auctions in the spring of 2015 for $6,600. The card was later cleaned or restored in some way and slabbed as a PSA-7, which was a Population 1. Um, It is clear when this, second card, when this card appeared as a PSA 7, though, it's clear that these are the same card because there's the same discoloration marks on the front. Um, they have the same centering. They have the same exact print dots. There's a, um, I think there was a tape stain. So there's a lot of stuff that all matches up. Um, and that's kind of how you do have to go about it with these vintage cards. Well, that was spring of 2015. Then in August of 2015, Brent sold this card privately Courtney, who's the collector that I mentioned earlier, um, for $75,000 as a PSA 7 without disclosing the, whatever you want to call it, cleaning, alterations, um, you know, whatever was done to that card. And um, obviously, you know, this guy has mentioned multiple times he would not have purchased that card had he known the history of the card, which by the way, Brent did know. Um, in 2016, the card was then sold by Courtney to another buyer. He still didn't know about the alterations to this card, um, who then consigned the card back with PWCC in February of 2017. So it kind of circled back around to Brent. Um, and this time the card sold for $52,000. And remember earlier, the original sale, the original purchase by Brent was $6,600. So that's, um, quite the gain. Now, during the course of that final auction, Courtney, he sought to win the card back. He lost some money on it at one point, which he talks about it. You know, that wasn't a big deal to him. He's not upset about that. Uh, But now he wanted to win the card back, so he he bid on it. And he stopped, though, when it was revealed on the Net54 forums that the card was indeed altered because somebody had seen it posted to eBay. They recognized the card. They traced it back. So during the middle of this auction, Um, It was revealed. Um, According to him, according to Courtney, Brent texted him and asked him to keep the bidding going. Um, Now, that exchange was originally posted on the Net 54 forums, but has also been posted in a couple of places. I found it pretty easily on the Sports Card Radio website, and it reads as follows Um, Brent texted him, please grab the high bid on the DiMaggio. It looks too much like you're just pumping the auction and I've had a few people complain. You'll be outbid. And Courtney responded, I'm bidding in uh, 1K increments like you asked previously. Cancel my bids if there's a problem. I'm not doing anything 10 million other people don't do. Well, what was Brent's response? He said there are many bids under the $1,000 amount. Let's not play games. Just take the high bid. I assure you the bid will go higher. Um, So that that was a lot of it was Courtney's side of the story. So I did want to try and present as much as the other side as I possibly could. Um, Brent's wife, Betsy, logged onto the Net54 forums and she posted their side of the story. And she said, It might seem hard to believe to our few skeptics, but asking Courtney to take the place as the high bidder was done to avoid us having to cancel his bids which would have affected the integrity of the auction. We certainly would have preferred he never bid at it at all on this card. His sequential bids were damaging to the auction atmosphere, yet we couldn't cancel the bids because it was not technically outside our policy. By him becoming the high bidder, it lessened the impropriety of his sequential bidding per our policy. There was nothing conniving about us stating that he would be outbid. Our claim was simply based on assumptions about the perceived value of the card and the overall price expectations. So I know there have been people that have said, well, how do we know that these text exchanges weren't photoshopped? Well, she replied to them. So she acknowledged, I mean, without saying yes, these are real, the fact that she's responding to them and not saying that they're fake is her confirming that that conversation took place she's trying to square away what that conversation actually meant and how we should interpret that um it was also interesting that they didn't address the accusations that they knew that the card had been altered cleaned restored whatever you want to call it Um, after the alterations on the dimaggio were outed on the message boards brent wrote in a separate text to courtney that whoever removed the toning on the card quote unquote did the hobby a favor All right, so I know that was lengthy, um, and I know it involves a baseball card, right? But I think that story is worth sharing, and I tried to condense it down as much as I can. You can read all 16 pages of the back and forth on the Net54 forums. All of that is to say, though, this class action suit claims that PWCC encourages shill bidding. And even though it wasn't mentioned, um, I'm reasonably certain that this DiMaggio card is going to be central to that claim. If it's not, I would be absolutely shocked. I'm interested to see where they go. Um, okay, and then similar to their request for PSA, uh, this class action complaint um, essentially claims that PWCC customers that purchased altered cards should be compensated. They said PSA and PWCC both have similar guarantees and neither company lived up to them. Alright, finally then we had the complaint levied against Probstein and honestly it doesn't look like there's much to it. Um, It just more or less says that Probstein knew he was selling altered cards because experts in the trading card field should be able to identify alterations. Um, here, Here there's all that juicy stuff against PWCC and then we get to Probstein and there's seemingly nothing there. Um, I think our resident hobby legal expert Paul Lesko summed it up best on his Twitter when he tweeted, it wouldn't shock me if Probstine escapes at least some claims on a motion to dismiss. Well, um, if that all wasn't interesting enough, things get really spicy after the three defendants are addressed separately because, um, and this all goes down on page 33, this is where the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act comes into play. Better known as RICO, and that's how I'll refer to it from here on out. And um, a lot of people think of mob or mafia type stuff when they think of RICO and organized crime, and maybe that's how it started, but it reaches a lot further than that. You know, organized crime can take so many different forms. Well, in this case, the plaintiff alleges that the defendants sought to increase their profits through an unlawful scheme. Earlier in the document, um, I felt like the language was a little more forgiving when they said things like, you know, as experts, they should have been able to recognize alterations. Now the case seems to accuse them of perhaps ignoring said alterations on purpose. And it says that they quote, operated an association in fact enterprise, which was formed for the purpose of grading and selling altered trading cards throughout the United States and through which they conducted a pattern of racketeering activity. The plaintiff continues by noting that he believes, quote, there was a common communication network by which the co-conspirators shared information on a regular basis, and that they used this common communication network for the purpose of selling altered cards to the general public nationwide. They said, um, the defendants functioned as a continuing unit with the purpose of furthering the illegal scheme, and their common purpose of increasing their revenues and market share and minimizing losses, and then for the conspiracy to succeed, each of the defendants and their co-conspirators had to agree to implement and use the similar devices and fraudulent tactics against their intended targets. Okay, um, I've read a lot of stuff about these companies over the last couple of years, and there have been, you know, I've heard kind of rumblings that they were working together, but I've never seen anything definitive. And as you guys know, I've been very critical of these companies when I felt I needed to be. Um, So I'm very interested to see how they go about proving all of this. Um, All right. And finally, as with any class action case, this has to be certified first. The document explains who all could be a part of this case should they choose to be. uh, And they said that that is all natural persons residing in the United States or its territories who submitted cards for rating to PSA, purchased PSA rated cards or own PSA rated cards during the time period when PSA was rating altered cards and up to entry of judgment in this case. So that could be some of you guys So that might be worth noting there. All right. So that is a basic summary of the case. I've had a couple of people ask me what I make of it. So I'm going to give a few thoughts before I sign off. Uh, First off, I want to make it clear that I'm not telling you to avoid doing business with PSA, PWCC, or Probstein. That's a decision that you make on your own. I can't tell you what to do. Um, And even this document uh, concedes that, quote, many of the cards graded and sold by defendants are legitimate, including cards that have not been altered. Um, As for the case itself, I know there are some people out there that are worried that the plaintiff will wind up settling um, it would be much easier for these companies to pay one person a substantial sum of money or you know, pay them the price of the cards as opposed to paying all of the people that could potentially join this class. But I did see another collector online that claims to know Eric Savoy, and he said as far as he knows, the plaintiff is out for blood. Um, Other posters chimed in when I was looking at some reactions to this case, they chimed in that Eric better have a lot of money at his disposal to see this thing through. Well, it's my understanding that in a class action case, the costs are often fronted by the law firm and then they're later paid out as part of the settlement or jury reward as part of a common fund. So that aspect of it is comforting to me. Hopefully he won't feel the pressure to settle at any point. Um... Another poster asserted that legally speaking, this filing feels too ambitious for its own good. And then they followed by saying, but maybe that's not the point. Maybe the point is the existence of a filing. I had similar thoughts when I went through all of this at first. And I think it's good to get all of this stuff out there and and to get it out in the legal realm. Because now it's not just message board chatter. You know, now this thing actually... Um, it feels like it's moving somewhere, even if slow. But it does feel like they bit off a bit more than they can chew. And maybe I'm underestimating their legal team. I don't, you know, I don't know them. I, I hope I am underestimating them. Um, but they've set out to prove that PSA can't follow their own rules. PWCC encourages insiders to show their own cards. Probstein knowingly sells altered cards, and then that a combination of these companies work together to move altered cards. So that's going to be a a pretty um, tough battle, in my opinion. All right, so there you have it. Um, I really don't have anything else to add for the time being. I would suggest, if if you aren't already, make sure you're following Paul Lesko on Twitter. He's a great source for all things legal in the hobby. Um, I feel pretty confident that he's going to uh, keep a close eye on this one as well. With that being said, I'd love to hear from you guys. I talked about OpTic towards the start of the episode. Have you found any yet? Um, if you have, what are you doing with it? What's your stance on, on all of the um, immediate flipping? And then also, what are your thoughts on this class action complaint? Where do you stand on purchasing cards from PWCC and Probstein, or where do you stand on grading cards with PSA? Let me know on my Instagram, which is at Podcast, or my Twitter, which is at PC.